This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, just wanted to listen to a little rush here on a Friday afternoon, taking you into the weekend, uh, trying to figure out what's going on with the working men and women of this country. The jobs report came in a lot lighter. So what's underneath all that? Let's bring in our old friend, Chris Liu. He's senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. Go Cavaliers. He's also the former deputy secretary of labor under President Obama. He joins us on the phone from Virginia. So Chris, those headlines start crossing this morning. What's your first thought? Well, my first thought is what I used to always say, which is, you know, one month, um, we need just to be careful. It's not a trend. Uh, that being said, um, this was a low number. And I think when you look at not only this month's number, but the revisions of the previous two numbers, uh, which took off 75,000 jobs, you definitely get more evidence of a slowing economy. You put all that top uh, on top of retail sales, factory orders, um, lower growth for uh, second quarter, uh, and there's a sense things are slowing down. And so it certainly poses a challenge for the president as he's uh, engaging in this uh, this battle on tariffs with Mexico and China and other countries as to how much of a headwind that's going to create for a slowing economy. How do you handicap the U.S.-China trade negotiations that are going on? Do you see it as posturing? Do you see it as each of them needing to kind of save face a little bit and that ultimately they understand, meaning the U.S. and the China, have to come to terms on some kind of deal? Well, look, I, I, I think I assume everyone's a rational actor. They understand that in a, a global economy, uh, trade is an important thing. Um, the, the challenge right now is that both sides have really kind of you know, drawn their battle lines pretty carefully, clearly on this. And a lot of the issues that the president raising are legitimate issues, whether it deals with intellectual property protection or access to the Chinese market. Rightfully, there's skepticism about um, whether any concessions that are made by China will be codified into law. Um, that being said, the people that are ultimately suffering are, you know, U.S. farmers that can't ship their products in there, uh, U.S. manufacturers that rely on um, Chinese materials for their products. And so, um, yes, you would assume in a rational world that two sides could work this out. But given where the rhetoric is right now and where the battle lines have been drawn, um, this might take a while. But it's not just rational, right, Chris, because you've got a president who's facing a reelection, and it's all about the economy. We know that. And in China, you know, you've got people, you know, and China has deep pockets that they can certainly put subsidies and benefits and so on and so on things to, to prop up the economy. But they certainly don't want a population to that's unhappy, you know. Uh, so I'm just, you know, there's those kind of pressures on them as well. Well, you know, it's exactly right. I mean, all this needs to be framed through the domestic politics uh, as particularly as we go into a presidential election year, uh, the president has made a decision um, that even that his base will stick with him, even if they suffer some temporary or it's increasingly longer now uh, economic harm because they like the tough position that he's taking. And he thinks he can ride that out. The question becomes if this posturing ends up hurting the overall U.S. economy, um, whether he starts to lose uh, some of that base. 
you know, so far you see a little bit of a fraying, um, and they've obviously been trying to make this up with the bailouts to the farmers. And you're right, China actually, in a controlled economy, has the ability to shift things around. Uh, obviously, they have greater control over their currency, so they can offset some of this. But this is not good for either country. So, Chris, let's talk a little bit about wages. Also, a point of disappointment, it felt like. So I want to start there, but I also want to make sure we talk about the minimum wage discussion because that has really come to the fore uh, this week as well, especially after that uh, Walmart annual meeting. So let's talk about today and then talk about the broader uh, wage discussion. Right. Uh, So today's wage number was disappointing as well. It was – I think year over year, 3.1%, um, which, you know, again, is good. Um, it's not great, though. And I think particularly when you're looking at 3.6% unemployment, you would assume in a tightening labor market that wages would be rising much faster than that. The other interesting thing about this was is the labor force participation numbers, which really have not budged over the last you know, since I've been doing this last five or 10 years. And so it suggests that people really are not coming off the sidelines right now into this uh, uh, economy. So more broadly, though, I'm glad you mentioned the federal minimum wage. Uh, Next Sunday, um, we celebrate a pretty unfortunate milestone. It will be the longest period of time uh, between minimum wage increases in U.S. history. Wow. Uh, The last time it was raised was July of 2009. So we've gone almost 10 years without a minimum wage increase, and it's still stuck at 7.25 an hour on the federal level. So what do we do? Why isn't this? Yeah, I mean, it's got to move up substantially, correct? At this point. Well, it does. You know, in, I mean, look, if you simply look, we can have a ar- broader argument about whether, you know, $15 is the right wage or not. But if you simply indexed the minimum wage from 1968 to now, it gets you at about $12 an hour. And in particular, when you have large companies, Walmart, Amazon, McDonald's that have all said we support a federal minimum wage increase, uh, it does beg the question why Washington can't get around to solving this problem. Fortunately, states are taking action. Twenty-nine states, the District of Columbia, all have higher state minimum wages. But it still means that millions of people are being left behind, largely in southern states right now, which tie their state minimum wages to the federal wage when you talk to people in Washington, either former colleagues, former rivals, maybe, uh, Chris, mm-hmm. do you feel like there is any sort of momentum around minimum wage? Certainly we're hearing it from the C-suite, but it doesn't feel like we're hearing too much from policymakers, or am I wrong? You know, I, no, I don't. I, I don't as well. I mean, right now, House Democrats are, are struggling to come up with their own proposal. Um, there's been some concern that $15, which is really where the Democratic Party is, um, might be too high, uh, and whether they ought to come up with some kind of you know bifurcated or regional wage levels. It is worth noting that in the 80 years that we've had a federal minimum wage, it's basically a nationwide standard. Yeah. Uh, and we can have an argument about whether 15 is too high for certain states in the South, uh, but obviously where you all are in New York, 15 is a little too low right now. So we have a standard, and you know businesses adjust, and the minimum wage has gone up, I believe, 28 times over the last 80 years under both Democratic and Republican presidents. So this shouldn't be a partisan issue, but unfortunately, everything in Washington is partisan. It certainly feels that way these days. Chris Liu, senior fellow at University of Virginia Miller Center. Just eat it. Yeah. Just eat it. Just eat it. Nice. Yeah. Just eat it. Uh, we are.
talking um, about Beyond Meat. Uh, shares rallying to record high after the company's inaugural earnings report impressed the street. Better than expected annual outlook. Uh, also, uh, leaving some room maybe for this stock to go even higher. You'll get me funny. No, I just know you're going to use my line. Beyond Meat, it's Beyond Me. <laughs> I like very that. proud of that. I think I'm going to put that out on Twitter. Yeah. Dina Schenker is consumer reporter at Bloomberg News. She is today at the Plant-Based World Expo at the Javits Center, Center in New York City. Uh, she joins us on the phone from there. Uh, great to have you here. Beyond Meat up 35% as we speak. How appropriate that this is the expo you're at. First of all, tell us about where you are because it sounds like this is not just a few company thing, but it's a lot more than that. Hi, thanks for having me. And yes, there are so many companies here and they are making so many different kinds of meatless meat. Um, I started writing some of them down. I tried a Reuben sandwich with seitan corned beef, and it was honestly, it was delicious. I tried uh, some, uh, like a, a pork protein type thing that is actually sold to sausage companies that real sausage companies put in their sausage. Um, and a lot of the time, people don't even notice. Uh, there's good catch. They make plant based uh, fish. Uh, types of food. There's light life. They're a staple of the vegan uh, diet. Um, companies I've never heard of, like Abbott's Butcher, their uh, premium chorizo type product with smoky, and I thought very tasty. So, Dina, um, I, could, it, I could just keep reading from the list. There were so many. So, it sounds like Beyond Meat is onto something, right? So, let's talk about a little <laughs> bit about the quarter. Uh, what stood out for you? So, the big news uh, was their revenue, which beat. Uh, the analyst estimates, and um, I think was probably the main reason that the that we all are watching this this stock just jump super high. Um, but aside from the the financials and the release, there were some really interesting things that came out during the call. Uh, the number one thing I thought uh, was really interesting was that uh, CEO Ethan Brown said that like they can they're ready for the big QSR. Uh, national fast food chain order when it comes like they'll be ready for it and uh, of course the the one everyone is thinking about is uh mcdonald's but uh brown didn't you know specify that they're that they're sitting there waiting for mcdonald's um but especially as their rival impossible burger is dealing with shortages uh beyond is saying bring on the business yeah. And I mean, is anyone out there worried that this valuation is getting a little crazy? There are a lot of uh, short sellers that are that are saying that. Uh, but there's seems to be more. I mean, there seems to be more enthusiasm for the brand than there is uh, doubts about it. But really, I think a lot of people recognize that this is a lot of uncharted territory. Yeah. And there's no way to say for sure. Well, I was just going to say a lot of short short sellers too either had to do some short covering or just are feeling a lot of pain on the run up that we saw in the stock today. I don't know. You know, we look at the space, we talk about it, we understand. You know, the food space is definitely evolving. I do wonder though, Dina. You know, does Beyond Meat have to be nervous about some of the big food companies that are out there that can throw a lot of money into something very quickly and all of a sudden become the major player in any given space? So the first answer to that is, you know, they're all they're all competing against meat. They're not necessarily competing against each other. And so there's plenty of room to compete uh, in that sense. 
the second part of the answer is Beyond Meat uh, does have an early mover advantage. Uh, they are a name that is becoming more and more well-known. Uh, they've also been working on this for, for a really long time, which is what uh, Ethan Brown, CEO, talks about, like, their maniacal focus on innovation. And, and it's true. They're constantly uh, working on making a better and better product. Of course, you know, hard to say what it will what it will be like when Tyson comes out with something and Tyson has all the customers it uh, has the distribution channels it has the manufacturing capacity so that's I, I think that that's an open question right well we'll let you get back to trying all those interesting <laughs> things really I can't wait to read the story that outlines all of these different products because certainly we're hearing more and more about this and I would imagine that Beyond Meat's performance is really going to give some ballast to a lot of these companies and give some investors a reason to to get behind it. Dina Shanker is consumer reporter for Bloomberg. She joined us on the phone. She's across town in New York City at the Plant-Based World Expo, where certainly Beyond Meat Carol is the buzz. Was it pastrami she mentioned right off the bat? Pastrami and sausage and some sort of pork situation. Um, (laughs) Pork situation. Pork protein situation. Excuse me, people. We have a pork situation. We have a pork situation here. And spoiler alert, it's not actually pork. I, I mean, know. It's just amazing. I haven't really tried any of this stuff, so now I'm feeling like I need I've to I've tried an impossible burger. It's good. It's I mean good. it's definitely good. Charlie Pell was talking about how he you know, he tried one on the street. You know, he's he's good for like someone handing him something to eat. And he's good for that, <laughs> right, Charlie? And did I tell you who who bought who paid for it? Who? Our friends at the Economist. They, yeah. They they, they had a they, they were at Wait, a street fair. You'll take a meatless burger from anybody, Charlie. Uh, you Are know you saying what? we should replace the ice cream upstairs with meatless burgers? I don't know about I'm sure yeah. that well who knows but it was pretty good it was really pretty good <laughs> it's been a slow all right definitely one of my favorite pieces in the magazine this week by one of our favorite writers i'm not gonna lie you know it's hard to pick among them but peter coy makes me think really stands out every time we come uh into the studio with him we really learn something of course he's not in the studio with us today because He's partying up in Ithaca at his college reunion at Cornell. I bet you're all talking about the 10 years of growth that the U.S. economy is celebrating, right, Peter? Has not been a big topic of conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Joel Weber, I should mention, is also here with us in our interactive broker studio. But, Peter, I want to start with you because you really set the table so nicely with this piece because you talk about how there hasn't been a lot of celebration, uh, even as we approach a really important milestone for this uh, economic recovery. Yeah, well, we reached the milestone this month because in June 2009, the economy hit its very bottom, the bottom of the Great Recession. And ever since then, we've been crawling slowly back. And I should probably emphasize the word slowly here because it has been sort of like Lonesome George, the Galapagos turtle, tortoise <laughs> that just kind of clumped along with never really overheating, but never really impressing anybody with its speed either. So it's been 10 years, and that means it's tied for the longest expansion in U.S. history and records going back to 1854. And that's why you would think people would be partying because, again, because again so slowly, they're actually not so happy. Plus, they're worried that, hey, maybe it's going to end soon. So, so Peter, when you were working on this, what did you, um, what did you discover that you didn't already know? I actually... I knew that, obviously, the reason we did it was that we knew it was time for the longest, but I hadn't really realized 
how slow it was. So the, the, the record that this ties was 1991 to 2001. So that lasted a long time, and yet the growth was much more vigorous back then. It was the GDP, gross domestic product, cumulatively grew over those 10 years, or the first 39 quarters of that period, by 43% versus only 22% this time. So, that you know, twice as fast. So, you know, that's pretty disappointing. And so, Peter, one of the things that really comes to the fore in your piece is you name check and actually speak to some very important uh, economists, not the least of which is Larry Summers, used to run a place yeah. called Harvard, worked yeah. in the government, Treasury Secretary, all that. He's got some very specific thoughts about what's been going on and, and why we may be in the position we're in. Yeah, so Larry Summers was there at the beginning of this expansion. He was President Obama's director of the National Economic Council, and he was one of the people who was agitating for more and stronger action to get the economy growing faster, you know, more fiscal stimulus. Uh, and he's still saying today that more can be done. He, he thinks it would be folly for the Fed to even think of raising rates, and he's actually in favor of uh, cutting rates, uh, you know, not, not waiting, but cutting now. Uh, and that's because he believes the U.S. is in a case of so-called secular stagnation, which is a phrase that goes back to the Great Depression in the 1930s. That's a case where the economy will not grow on its own without sort of emergency aid from the fiscal and monetary side. So, you know, it's a Friday here when anybody can walk into the studio, including... Not just anybody. (laughs) Editor of our economic section, Christina Lindblad, uh, for the magazine, and she's here in our studio as well. You know, we do think about, you know, Peter's story, how many stories you guys are covering. We're looking at what's going on, you know, in terms of economic growth. And some of these developed nations, they're having a tough time getting more growth out of the economy. And it speaks certainly to Peter's story, but we look at it really kind of around the globe. Well, and that, you know, the section we tried to do as a as a as a, as a takeover on this topic right us is at this moment but what about everybody else so christina yeah. like when you looked at how to put that perspective together what else did you decide to include well we wanted to look at australia which even jay powell has noted you know why can, people would ask him like why how long can it go on and he said well there's australia it's on, on almost 28 years uh which if it gets there it will surpass the netherlands which also had a 20-year growth streak so I think even though we would say that overall maybe growth was disappointing in this 10-year run compared to previous ones, certainly other countries in Europe would have loved to have what we had over That's the last That's a good point. Years. Yeah, I agree with Christina that, uh, and Larry Summers, in fact, would make that point. He said, yeah, the U.S. does have secular stagnation, but if you want to see real secular stagnation, go to Japan or Western Europe. And what about uh, David Blanchard? Where, where does he enter into all of this, uh, Peter? Yeah, David Blanch, uh, yeah, he goes by Danny. David Blanchflower was on the, uh, he's a Dartmouth College professor, he's a Brit, and he used to be on the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England, and he's a dove, so that means he likes low interest rates. He <laughs> he's believes, a dove? You say that with such uh, venom there, Peter. No, 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 no. Just, 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 <laughs> he's just, a dove. Really a label. He's a dove, and he believes that uh, when we say the unemployment rate is, low, which it is, 3.6%, again, this latest month, and that ties to the fifth-year uh, low. That, that's good. 
uh, except that it it's not a true measure of how much slack there is in the economy. That is to say, it doesn't really reflect how many people are willing to work um, because it doesn't count all the people who are sort of out of the labor force because, me, you know, maybe they got pessimistic or are working uh, part-time when they would prefer to work full-time. You said if you measure underemployment, then you would see that that helps explain why wages have been so low because there's still sort of this reserve army of the underemployed. Well, and the thing is, I think also interesting your story, Peter, is that you point out that, you know, there have been other growth cycles that have lasted a long time without being this slow. It doesn't have yeah. to be this way. Right. That's what I was referring to before about yeah. the 91 to 2001, which was the was the uh, sole record holder until it was tied by this one. So now we all want to know, uh, Joel asked me, hey, why are we doing this story now? Shouldn't we really wait till July? <laughs> And, uh, you know, maybe I'll have to come back and write about it again in July. The editor said no. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say, what's the conversation? staff said no, now's the moment. So, Peter, I also want to – I think I want to institute a Friday trophy for perhaps the the best kicker of the week uh, in Business Week. Um, You you quoted Blanche Flower, actually. Yeah. With that quote sends shivers down my spine every time I read it. And he he was referring to uh, John Maynard Key's quote. Right. Uh, Yeah. Do you uh, can you quote that one off the top of your head by chance? I'm, I'm well, I, I can paraphrase it, which is that Keynes said you can get into a position of what he called a semi slump. That's where you've gotten past the worst of your downturn, but you haven't really gotten into a robust recovery. You sort of creep along, and that's just a pretty good description of what this recovery has looked like for most of its ten-year life. And he said there are ways to overcome a semi slump, but right. they require strong leadership, people who are really willing to step up and take strong action. Okay. And the implication, of course, is that maybe we're not doing that, and that's Got what sends shivers up Blanche Flowers' spine. All right, take that to the Hamptons uh, this weekend, Kicker everybody. <laughs> Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, Peter Coy, economics editor of the magazine, and Christina Lindblad, editor of the economics section. We've had a party on this Friday. Check out, though, the magazine. Great read, and a lot online as well. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Uh, We've just got a few minutes left in today's trading session. Melda Mergen is Deputy Global Head of Equities at Columbia Thread Needle Investments. Thread Needle Investments, let me say it again. Uh, Joining us on the phone from Boston. Melda, nice to have you here. You know, it's interesting. I was just kind of adding up uh, what the major equity averages have done this week. It's been quite a bullish week for equities. We're talking about 4% higher on the NASDAQ, up almost 5% on the Dow, and up about 4.6% on the S&P 500. What does this week's trade tell you about the equity universe? Thank you for having me. It's great to be here first. I think definitely there is the signal from the stock market, a relief, I would say, 
uh, with the expectations of Fed is not going to be tightening anymore or even higher probability of a cut. So that's really what is, I think, the signaling stock market. That being said, there are still a lot of headline risks in the marketplace that we are watching very closely. And how would you rank those headline risks? Because some of them we've been living with for quite some time, i.e., or e.g., U.S.-China. Some are a little newer and uncertain, e.g., U.S.-Mexico. How do you rank them? I think uh, from a headline risk point of view, definitely the trade conflicts are very important. And there are high expectations for the G20 meeting that's going to take place in terms of probably solving some of those those uh, conflicts. Uh, other than that, I would say uh, the second half of the year will be all about uh, domestically the election campaign, the primaries, and that's going to be very important too. You know, I want to go back to something you said about the equity universe. I'm just curious, you know, why are equities celebrating, considering if they anticipate, as you said, a lower rate environment? I get that. Everybody's going to be pushed to seek yield and, you know, you'll move into equities and other places um, and riskier assets, if you will. But why, why are the equity markets celebrating if what we're saying is things are not going so well, the economy continues to maybe slow down, possibly a recession, the Fed is going to need to cut rates in order to help out the economic environment. Why would investors rally on that? I would say last year with starting the tightening created this fear that it would continue. And in 2018, the second half, we start seeing the first signs of slowdown. So our expectation was for the U.S. economy to slow in 2019. Again, some of the the speeches from Fed was still hawkish, although the signs were starting to, to surface. So investors were very concerned about it. So I think this correction tells you that once the investors start hearing Fed to be more cautious and not necessarily jumping into a rate hike is the reason for, for this type of celebration. But it doesn't take away some of the, again, headlines and expected slowdown in the, in the economy. So, Melda, what do you think the Fed should do at this point? You see a lot of the same data as you look ahead to the next few months, what would you need to see to get behind a cut or what would you need to see to essentially just stay put here? I would say, again, our expectation is not an immediate cut. Fed usually waits to see more trends in the data to make a decision in policy change. So it's not the expectation, but definitely not raising the rising the uh, uh, interest rates is, is a welcomed outcome. Again, there are some uncertainties in the global market, and I want to make that distinction. I think, I believe U.S. economy is strong. We're not expecting any recession, but stock market reflects more of the global growth risk because even in S&P 500, the companies are uh, global, so they will have that impact in the earnings. So in that sense, not tightening uh, is, is a welcomed uh, I do, outcome for us. You know, Melda, I also do wonder if, if people are overreacting. I feel like sentiment swings very, very quickly. If you just take a look at December and then, you know, early part of 2019, and then we rallied big time back and then we fell apart again. So I do feel like investor sentiment can move very, very quickly here. And I think, you know, once we maybe resolve some of these macro issues, maybe we'll figure out what the real longer term trend is. And that could be up or down. 
Yes, I agree with that. Sentiment really goes uh, to swings from one end to another. That's where hopefully uh, institutional investors are a little bit calmer and looking at the fundamentals. So I would say it is a lot of information flow, news flow coming to the investors. But when you look at the fundamentals, definitely there are some risk in play, but a lot of fundamentals, especially in U.S. economy, is still very strong. So. Let's just go, cut to the chase. Uh, the June Fed meeting, do you think that the Fed will ultimately cut rates after this jobs report or maybe give it another couple of months? I would say would give a couple of months. All right. We're going to leave it there. Mel DeMergan is Deputy Global Head of Equities for Columbia Threadneedle Investments. Joining us on the phone from Boston at the end of a week, Carol Masser, where we've seen quite a rally. A lot of green on the screen this week. I was kind of shocked. I've kind of been watching throughout the week how much of a bounce back that we've been getting, Uh, but it's pretty substantial. And I guess it makes sense. And certainly after a ton of Fed speakers, or Mike McKee had been talking to them all week uh, at that uh, Chicago Fed conference and event. And, you know, to have Jay Powell come out and basically say, not necessarily that he's going to cut rates, but he's watching things and he's watching trade specifically uh, to see the pressures it puts on the economy. That jobs report, maybe, you know, evidence number one. And we'll see if we start to get more signs of some weakness in the economy as a result of the trade uh, war that we're going through. Um, You know, we'll have to see where it goes. Right. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.